Please remain standing for the reading of the New Testament, Hebrews chapter 9, verses 23 through 28, the end of the chapter. Again, God's word from the New Testament, Hebrews 9, beginning in verse 23. God's word. Thus, it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly, as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own. For then he would have to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who eagerly wait, who are eagerly waiting for him. As far as the reading of God's word, may he bless it to us. Let's pray. So what is the worst sin? If you had to draw up a top ten of the foulest felonies, what would you put on your list? Well, things like murder, rape, war crimes, and abuse would top most lists. And these things have in common is that they hurt others. Indeed, most often we judge the heinousness of sin by its effects. A little lusting in the mind harms no one, so no big deal. But steal candy from a kid, and that's bad. Yet, is this accurate? Is this how scripture weighs sin? For if sin is measured only by its effects, what does this say about our sins against God? A bit of bad worship here, a smidge of idolatry over there. These don't hurt others. We can't see any effects our sins have on God. Thus, are they really that serious? How do we gauge such sins? And if we cannot perceive the effects of our sin, how are they remedied, forgiven? Well, as Hebrews continues his exposition on the work of Christ... He lays the answer to these questions before us, and the answer is wonderful. So we were just given, in the middle of chapter 9, a mini-tutorial on covenant theology and the role of blood. For you cannot ratify a covenant until the one making it offers up his life to die if he breaks that covenant. Thus, animal blood was shed, as a symbol of death, the death deserved for violation of the sworn covenant. And this became very evident in the Mosaic covenant. There, as we were reminded, Moses read the whole law to Israel. They swore total obedience, and sacrificial blood was sprinkled on the people to seal them for the curse if they disobeyed. Indeed, since blood stood for the punishment of sin, it also purified everything unto the Lord, and that blood was necessary for forgiveness. As he said in verse 22, without blood shedding, there's no forgiveness of sin. 
blood then both inaugurated and maintained the old covenant. And it's this aspect of blood that's further teased out for us. Under the law, he says, everything was purified with blood, and it was necessary that the copies of heaven also be purified with blood. Here, the author picks up what he taught us back in chapter 8. Namely, that there is a heavenly sanctuary, the genuine and true holy place of God in heaven, while the Old Testament tabernacle was an earthly replica of it. Moses' tent was like a dollhouse, while the celestial shrine was the real deal. And just as it was necessary for the earthly copy to be purified by blood, so the heavenly holy places must be washed with blood. And yet, if you think about it, this sounds awfully strange. The heavenly temple had to be purified with better blood? If something requires purification, this means it is impure. You wash the dirty, not the clean. But how is the heavenly shrine stained and filthy? How can God's heavenly home be impure and need of cleaning? This doesn't just seem odd, but almost offensive. No way. The holy and heavenly can't be defiled, requiring purification. And yet this is what Hebrews states explicitly. Sacrificial blood was demanded to purify the heavenly temple. What a bizarre notion. Where does this come from? Well, it comes from the Old Testament, and where this principle was central to the sacrificial system, and it deals with the debts and remedies of sin. For if you think about it, sin can be a very abstract thing. Sure, sins like murder and theft are concrete. You can see their damage and physically pay their debt. The murderer is executed, and what is stolen is paid back. But other sins, especially those against the Lord, are unseen and hard to get at. Thus, the question is, what happens when you sin? Well, in the Old Testament, this abstract nature of sin was presented in some very concrete images. First, there was the effect of sin upon you. When you sinned, your impurity put you in a state of guilt which was pictured as a heavy rock put in your backpack. That it's each sin placed upon you more weights where the pounds of your sin would eventually crush you. Thus, the primary idiom of the Old Testament for forgiveness was to bear your sins away. God carried your sins off. He lifted off the sin burdens from your back and you were pardoned. Secondly, though, your sin didn't just affect you, but it also offended the Lord. And this reality in the Old Testament was pictured by stains and defilements. Your sin was a heavy weight upon your back, but it was also a stain on God's sanctuary. Wherever you were, when you sinned, your sin stuck to the Lord's holy house like a foul spot. Your lusting was like mud on God's wall. Your idolatry was like feces on his carpet, 
Your disobedience was like toxic waste in the Lord's living room. Imagine if every time your neighbor sinned, it left nasty pollution in your house. Well, that is what our sin did to God's home. And this dynamic was evident from the Leviticus passage we read. There, as you noticed, Aaron sprinkled blood on the ark and upon the altar and purified these holy objects from the transgressions of the people. The people's impurities defiled the holy home of the Lord by almost like a magnetic attraction, and the only stain remover was blood. The same reality is seen in Leviticus 4 with the sin offering. There, the priest dabbed the blood on the horns of the altar to purify or purge the altar, but the result of the altar being purified was forgiveness for the worshiper. Blood washed the pollutions of your sin from the temple and won for you pardon. Now, this imagery of sin's pollution was really a variation of a legal idea. That is one where our sins are written down on God's record of wrongs, and he will surely punish. Yet, if Israel's sin soiled the earthly tabernacle as a replica and a type, then our sins also tarnish the Lord's genuine temple in heaven. Yes, your sins dirty up and contaminate the heavenly sanctuary where God dwells. You lie, and it's like manure on God's white carpet. Your lusting and coveting is like vomit on the Lord's leather couch. All our transgressions and iniquities are like a fridge of rotten food that's been unplugged for two months dropped in the middle of God's celestial boat. We may not be able to sense or to see the gross effects of our idolatries or impurities, but they pile up like toxic trash before the Lord. No wonder, then, that the Lord's uh, wrath burns against us sinners. Again, how would you like it if your neighbor's sin dumped revolting waste in your living room. Hence, as it says, it was necessary for the heavenly temple to be purified. Our sins profane the heavenly sanctuary, and if there's any hope for us, then all our sins need to be scrubbed from the Lord's holy home. Therefore, as it says next, Christ entered heaven for you. Jesus didn't minister As our priest in some man-made temple, his duty could not be fulfilled in the Mosaic Tabernacle or the Solomonic Temple, for these were merely toy models of the genuine article in heaven. No, our sins did not defile the gold of the ark or the bronze of the Mosaic altar. Rather, they blotched and smeared the very footstool of the Almighty in heaven. In our sin, we puked on the Lord's shoes, and cleaning up can only happen at the spot of defilement. Thus, Jesus entered that heavenly temple to make purification for your sins. Now, of course, how Christ ministered in heaven has already been explained to us. First, Christ worked in heaven 
by the eternal spirit. The Holy Spirit applied the blood of the cross to that heavenly temple. Secondly, though, Jesus entered heaven in his ascension. Vindicated by his resurrection, Christ sat down at the right hand to be our priestly mediator in perpetuity. Thus, at present, Jesus Christ appears before the face of God on our behalf. And this location of God's presence, or literally, before the face of God, isn't merely a dropped pin on the heavenly map, but it's a position of honor and status. This is the place of acceptance and fellowship. Before the face of God means that God was pleased and satisfied with the work of his son. For Jesus to be in the light of God's face on your behalf, this spells out that his purification for your sin was effective. His blood accomplished atonement and reconciliation. It means he is your surety, your representative priest, and your vicarious sacrifice. To stand before God proves that Christ's blood has washed away all the stains of your sin. The risen Christ stands in heaven for you. And even though this priestly mediation continues unceasingly, Jesus' narrow labor of purification was a one-time act. As Hebrews goes on to say, he didn't offer himself up repeatedly. Christ didn't have to shed his blood over and over again. And this, too, is a wonder that, that is better than we could have ever guessed. For think about it. When it comes to stains and cleaning things, by nature we think of it as a continuous chore. For you can't really clean up future messes. You can't mop the floor today for your husband's floody, muddy food, footprints of tomorrow. This is kind of basic common sense, which was built into the Old Testament sacrificial system. There, the Aaronic high priest had to bring new sacrifices to purify the tabernacle for Israel's most recent sins. Thus, every year on the Day of Atonement, the high priest took animal blood into the tabernacle to purify it. Israel's sins had piled up like trash over the past year, their iniquities numbered in the thousands and stained God's holy furniture. Thus, one day, every fall, the high priest was on cleaning duty. And as long as there was more sins, the priest had to do more purifying. Now, of course, the people kept sinning, and the, pe- the priest purifying became an endless chore. Again and again, animal blood was offered. Yet Christ's atonement was not performed many times. He didn't offer himself up a thousand times. For if Christ's purification was a repeated duty, then he would have had to suffer many times since the foundation of the world. And this time referent is significant. Why does the author here mention the beginning of the world? Because this is how long... People have been sinning. Since the fall in Genesis 3, humans have been rebelling and sinning unceasingly. 
And if Jesus is going to purify the sins of all his people, it needs to cover the sins of Eve and Noah, of Isaac and Jephthah. This means that Christ's work is for all his people throughout all of history, past, present, and future. And if his purifying was a repeated action, then he would have to suffer again and again for each generation. There would have been millions of sufferings of Christ. But of course, this is not how it happened. Instead of repeated sufferings, Jesus appeared once at the end of the ages. He was born and died a single time, and this in the fullness of time, not at the beginning of the world, but closer to the world's end. This, though, can stretch our minds. You have trillions of sins committed by billions of people over vast ages of history. How can one offering purify this Mount Everest of sins? His suffering repeatedly seems more logical to us. And it would be if it wasn't for a stubborn and indisputable fact. As he says next, it was destined for humans to die once. God ordained that us humanoids die a single time. Now, sure, there are a few exceptions to this. Lazarus, Jairus' daughter, and the sons that Elijah and Elisha raised from the dead, these people died twice. Likewise, Enoch and Elijah didn't even die once. But these puny exceptions prove the rule. Men and women can only die once. This is a hard fact of God's physical world. Therefore, as true man, Jesus could perish only once. For his offering up of himself and his sufferings are merely other ways to say he died. To retain his full humanity, Jesus could die but once, which makes it impossible for him to sacrifice himself repeatedly. It's a biological truth that Christ died once. And yet, there's also another ordained reality that all people know. God appointed that we all die once, and after this, judgment. Judgment necessarily follows death, which is also a fact of natural revelation. Now, this post-mortem judgment might not seem as solid as us dying once. For as sinners, we often suppress this truth easier Sure, as teenagers, we can feel like we will live forever, but the wrinkles of age soon wake us up to our folly. Judgment after death, though, this cannot be measured by our scientific instruments, so it's simpler for us to deny, ignore, or refuse. But written on the human heart, all humans know that judgment awaits after death. We die, and then comes judgment. Then the Lord will punish us for all the stains of sin that we left in the heavenly sanctuary. And our Lord's suffering aligns with both of these truths. First, he died once. He suffered a single time. There were not many deaths of Christ, but one and only. Though he was God, Jesus was also true man. 
Thus he sacrificed himself upon the cross once for all sin. And because the offering of his blood happened in heaven, look what it affected. By his sacrifice, he put away sin, verse 26. His death nullified all of our sins, every last sin of all of God's people. And this nullification aligns with purification. That red blood of Christ is the only detergent that can wash away your sins. Dark and stinky were our transgressions tainting the heavenly home of God. Foul and deep were our abominations before the Lord. No acid, no lime, no soap could cleanse our stains in heaven. No professional cleaning service could do the job. But Jesus did. He was the priestly maid that got down on his knees to scrub off your impurities with his own blood. His blood was the washing fluid that turned our dark stains white as snow. Christ's better blood was the better sacrifice that purified heaven for you. And what Christ does in heaven is applied to you. Remember that in verse 14 of this chapter, the author said that Christ purified our conscience, and here he says he purifies heaven. Why both? Well, this is because the same sin defiles our hearts with guilt, and it pollutes heaven at the same time. While blood dabbed on the altar purifies heaven and our hearts. Thus here, he uses a different but synonymous imagery in verse 28 when he says, Jesus bore the sins of many. Now this line is taken from Isaiah 53, which pulls from the sacrificial system. Sin polluted the sanctuary, but remember it was also a crushing weight upon us. Thus, forgiveness lifted the burden off your back and bore it away. And Jesus was the one that lifted the tonnage of your sins. Your wickedness that would have crushed you smashed your Savior. By his one death, Jesus bore all your transgressions in his own body. And to bear away the mul- your multitude of sins means you are perfectly forgiven in Christ. It indicates that your sin is actually destroyed and gone for good. And this is true for you as long as you trust in Christ's one death upon the cross. <clears throat> it's true of all of God's people through faith from Adam to the last person standing in history. This is the perfection and potency of Christ's one sacrifice. His blood purifies all your sin. His life bore away all your depravities. Indeed, so powerful is Christ's suffering for you that it alters natural law. Verse 27 gave us two laws of nature. One, all die once. Two, after death, judgment. 
Well, the cross does not change the first natural law. We will still all die. However, the second law no longer stands for those who are in Christ. Hence, it says, Christ will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who wait for him. Jesus Christ is coming again. He will appear in glory. But in his second coming, he deals not with our sin, for he already handled this in his first coming on the cross. Instead, he will come to offer us salvation. This salvation is contrasted with the judgment. Sure, Jesus will judge the world, but for all those who belong to him, he brings us salvation. The one death of Christ changed the fact of post-mortem judgment for you, and he turned it into salvation. The second coming of Christ is not one of judgment for you, but of salvation. Yes, the death of Christ saves you from everlasting condemnation and grants you eternal redemption. And this is for all who wait upon him. That is, it is a gift through faith. This is a grace that is bestowed upon you from believing hope. It's ours, not by works, but it is the gift of God. And such waiting means that we trust alone in the one death of Christ for our purification. And this waiting is the joyful hope that Christ will come again just as he promised. Such hope fixes its faith and devotion upon Jesus and it will not put it anywhere else. Therefore, may we be those who wait upon the Lord. Let us rejoice in the sacrifice of Christ that has washed away all our sins from heaven. Let us give thanks that Christ bore our rebellions in his own body. And then with hope and love, may we set our hearts on the things above. May we keep our gaze on Christ's second coming to deliver us perfectly from this fallen and sin-cursed world. Indeed, it is only as we rest in the death of Christ that we can then pray with joy, come, Lord Jesus, come quickly. Without Jesus, only judgment would lay ahead. But in Jesus and by his blood, salvation is kept for you by God. Thus, praise the Lord that Christ died once for us. And that he's coming again, not to deal with sin, but to bring you into the fullness of his unending joy. To your salvation, for your good, and his glory forever. Amen. Let's pray.